Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Most professional philosophers don't spend much time publicly musing about what makes a meaningful life. That sort of thing, goes the scornful judgment, belongs squarely to the decidedly less rigorous realms of pop psychology and self-help. But most professional philosophers aren't like Susan Wolfe, either. Don't be fooled by the fact that this UNC Chapel Hill philosopher sounds like a particularly warm and gentle friend rather than a steely, rigorous professor. Because Susan has impeccable academic credentials. She just doesn't let them get in the way of what she believes philosophy should be all about. Actually making sense of the world around us in order to live more productive and fulfilled lives. I started in math. I mean, like most people in America, I don't think I knew what philosophy was <laughs> when I was in high school. So, um, and I loved math and I loved logic in particular. So I went, went to college thinking I'd be a logician, I guess. Oh, really? Well, I don't actually, I don't, I, I might have went to college thinking I'd be a secretary, but logic was what I loved and so that's what I but you knew of logic in high because most people aren't exposed to logic in well, high school. Well, that's either. true too, and that was um, uh, when I was in high school. I was kind of I was a, a very unathletic kind of nerdy, you know, kid, and my parents, at I think great financial sacrifice, <laughs> um, saved to send me to one of those boarding school summer schools. You know, that's like summer camp for, for people who like school, people. right? Yes, <laughs> and. Just by chance, there was, it, it was, uh, this was Mount Hermon Summer School, and they would have a course that would be three hours every morning and, uh, you know, for the whole summer. And there was this fantastic teacher, uh, a math professor from Hampshire College, who was teaching mathematical logic for the semester. I mean, for the, it was for the summer, but it went all the way through to girls in completeness there. I mean, it was a very wow. intense thing for high school students, and I... It was the best thing I had ever encountered. So, I, so in fact, I loved logic from that experience, and that was my plan. And um, so that would that would uh, that would that's easy to understand from there why you why you went into philosophy. I mean, there's a direct link right there when yes. you're looking at math. So logic, logic is something that, especially in those days, some math some mathematics departments would own it and some philosophy departments would own it or there would be, you know, a, a real overlap there, right? right? And it happened that my advisor was a very philosophical logician. So he had actually started this math and philosophy program at Yale where, where I was and um, I might have been the first person to actually Go through <laughs> take it. advantage of it. <laughs> really? because, um, but yeah, so I went, right, so I loved logic and my second favorite uh, set of classes were English classes. I love logic and I love novels, basically. And um, so, I mean, one short way of explaining why I went into philosophy was because 
it was a subject in which you could do both those things <laughs> and count them as towards your major, sort of. Um, but I, abstracting a little bit more, I think it was that I loved uh, kind of the aesthetics of math, of, of um, system building and of the kind of clarity you could get and of the um, kind of mind-expanding feeling you got when you sort of learned these new concepts. And um, But I loved human beings. <laughs> I mean, I loved thinking about human, right. you know, stories and the human condition. So philosophy was a way in which you could kind of do, you could have the subject matter of the humanities in a, in a more formal kind of context. So, it, I mean, in retrospect, I think that was it was a good choice. <laughs> and, and did you find yourself, as time went on, moving more towards the human-centered aspects and less away from not so much mathematical logic, but other aspects of mathematics, because it can be quite abstract and quite impersonal and, and uh, very gratifying intellectually, but, but really seemingly independent of aspects of the human condition. Right. Well, it, while I was still in college, I just loved both those things. I didn't, uh, so I went into graduate school still expecting to do logic as my oh, really? topic, but because I had been a math and philosophy major, um, I had more math than philosophy. That was the way the major was structured. And so I got to graduate school and thought, well, before I go into what I'm planning to specialize in, I should get a, a broader background in philosophy. And then I just got distracted. I mean, I just, um, so I, you know, I was just taking courses in different subjects. There are always distribution requirements. And um, when I was in graduate school, um, Thomas Nagel was teaching at Princeton, and also Richard Rorty, and uh, sort of between them, I just found myself interested in other things, so I just didn't go back to logic. And when you were looking for a graduate program, presumably it was people like that that attracted you to, to go to Princeton to begin with? Were you thinking that you wanted to work with, with uh, I mean, you worked with Thomas Nagel, right? He was your supervisor. Yes, he was my what, was Was this something that you had deliberately sought out when you were looking around for graduate schools, or, or did this just happen uh, because you, you happened to have chosen Princeton? How did that work? Well, uh, so I wanted a really good graduate program, and uh, Princeton was, Princeton and Harvard were probably the best two at the time, or at least they, you know, that's what I was told. And so I looked at both of them, and I had, and, uh, I mean, they both would have been good for the things I was interested in. In fact, I'm not sure that I knew who Thomas Nagel was, but they, but they did have David Lewis and Saul Kripke was teaching courses there, right. though he wasn't fully on the faculty. Um, so it was a, it was actually a good place for sure. what I thought <laughs> I, I I was going to do, um, and seemed to have a more uh, nurturing and communal feel to it than Harvard. So I, you know, that was really. Okay. Yeah. And, and your, your work in free will and responsibility and all the rest of that, yeah. um, how did that come about? How did you start going along those lines? Well, as I remember it... Um, I'm talking to you, and it, it, it happened to you, so I'm, well, that's well, what I want to know. No, but there's an, so as I remember it, it was a, it was a result of teaching, uh, of taking one of 
Nagel seminars where we read some stuff on free will um, and where in particular I think it was in that class that I found out that it was all right to still be deeply puzzled by the subject. I mean, I, for some reason, I'm, I don't think I studied it in college, but I must have gotten some sense that people didn't think about those questions anymore, that they had either, that they had all been settled, and that all respectable people were, respectable people in philosophy were compatibilists about free will. That is, they didn't think worries about determinism uh, sapping us of freedom and responsibility. Uh, they thought such worries were confused and had been dealt with, and or at any rate, Push they didn't. Ha- yeah, you couldn't talk about that as something that you still didn't know the answer to. And then Nagel, ha- I mean, he has this wonderful way of not knowing the answers to. I mean, he loved questions that were really <laughs> hard and that. He didn't know the answers to, and yet here was this totally brilliant person. Um, so the discovery that I could actually ask that question and it would not be um, a sign of uh, intellectual weakness, or yeah, muddle-headedness, or right, right or softness, uh, was just fantastic. So that's I think it was through his course. I say that's what I'm told because my husband, who was also a philosopher, and whom I met though just kind of met in when he was in graduate school and I was in college when we took some courses together that um, said that I was interested in free will even then, but I, I didn't remember that. <laughs> so, no, but those two, things, not, right. those two things are incompatible, obviously, right? right? Yeah. I, I mean, as, as an inquisitive, open-minded person, you're thinking about these things and maybe, maybe I'm speculating, I wasn't there clearly, right. But, <laughs> right. but maybe... Uh, the sense that you were able to address a whole spectrum of open questions, or what do you seem to be open questions, because people as intelligent and wise and uh, obviously uh, perspicacious as Thomas Nagel uh, recognized that they were open questions, gave right. you the encouragement to be able to do that. I'm sure, right. I'm sure you were interested in free will as any reasonable person would be, well, uh, and, and other things as well. I'm sure, I'm sure right. it wasn't the only thing keeping you up at night or, or, or words to that effect. Right. Anyway, that's, right. that's, that's my position. Right. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your, your style, so I don't pretend to have read uh, everything you've written, but I've read a little bit, and it's, it, there seems to be some interesting aspects of, of your style that come through. So first of all, I, uh, I'll, I'll describe some of those aspects, and you can tell me if, uh, if that makes any sense to you or if, if any of that is actually deliberate. In keeping with some of the things you were saying before about your interest in mathematics and logic, as well as your interest in, in human beings. In, in the first case, um, so I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of uh, not only your, your book on meaningfulness, but also Moral Saints and, 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 and other things that you've written. There's an immediacy in your writing uh, there's a lack of pretentiousness, I can say, that comes across. You get a sense that you're engaged in philosophically substantive topics, 
but that there's a freshness and an immediacy that this is not just for academicians who are sitting in some ivory tower somewhere. This, these are things that have to do with the human condition that the, the person who's working at the, at the drugstore down the road and, and, uh, and, and your, whatever, your gardener and, and maybe your, yourself or whatever uh, has wrestled with and is wrestling with. Is that something that you deliberately try to convey in your writing? Uh, um, or, and first, well, I should ask you, first of all, do you agree with that that that, 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 that does come across? And if so, is it deliberate? Well, I take it as a compliment. I well, mean, it's, it's meant it's, as a compliment. So, so I, uh, right. I mean, I, uh, I aim for it. And um, so, yes, I guess it's deliberate. Right. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's deliberate. I don't know that I could do it any other way. I mean, you write the way you have to write. But, um, but it does reflect um, my attitude both about what I think uh, philosophy, or at least the kind of philosophy I love and got into the field for, should be, and um, also this fact that my writing, I think, has always been partly informed by the thought, I want my parents to be able to understand it. <laughs> uh, I mean, my parents are very smart people. They could understand anything, but they didn't go to college, and they don't. And so anything that would look, you know, so jargon I, you know, I'm I'm sensitive to it in that way. Just that sort of think, I'm thinking of my readers as people like my parents or or like my. When had you always done that? Did did you bounce things off your parents when you when you were uh, all the way through your career earlier in your career? Did you did no, you do that? No, not at all. <laughs> but I, you know, I just always had this. I, it's not that I was thinking always specifically about no, their reading test, it. I, I but it was. I, I think it just you know was kind of this sort of back of your mind thought like um, I mean I still think when I am at a philosophy uh, colloquium or something you know how would I feel if someone who wasn't in philosophy walked into this room and saw people talking like this about this subject so I at least want to hold myself up in a way that I wouldn't be ashamed <laughs> yeah. Seems like a, a reasonable way to proceed. Um, yeah. the, the, the second thing that, that, that comes through to me in your style of writing is, is this um, desire to find a middle way or, or at least um, uh, push some potentially extreme position. So th let, me, let me tell you, extreme may not be the right word, but um, let me tell you what I, what I mean by that. Let me give you some examples of that. So uh, when it comes to some work on, on, on moral luck, there's this notion of, well, there's this way to look at things, and there's that way to look at things, and maybe we don't actually have to look at things uh, in, these, in this sort of bipolar type of extreme. Right. We, there, there's a middle way we can actually yes. do things. Um, and I mentioned the moral saints before. There's this idea of uh, if, if we believe that there is some systematic framework for morality, well, then we should, then a logical conclusion of that would be that we should try to all act as, as morally, as good as possible within that systematic framework. So one is getting the sense of, maybe I'm saying two different things, but one is I'm getting the sense of, looking at particular cases where you're, um, you have an established structure and you're testing that structure in different ways. So it's almost like, 
I mentioned that I have a physics background. It's almost like you're, you're trying to create these little test particles, which is what happens in physics all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You say, okay, you have, an, you have a law, you have a framework. Well, let's take a test particle. And more importantly, let's try to take a test particle which, which may actually lead to a result which we don't necessarily expect or we don't necessarily want, which can shed light on, the, uh, uh, on, on maybe the fallibility or, or at least uh, the fact that this theoretical framework that we have is not the last word. When it comes to meaningfulness, which I, I obviously we're going to get to in a moment, there's this sense of, okay, uh, some people think that we act because of driven by this motivation. Some people think we act because of that motivation. But what about these things over here that don't seem to fall into either one of those categories? So I'm always thinking that you're looking at these, these as I say, these test particles. Is that, does that make any sense at all? Is that, is, does that resonate with you? Or am I just imposing some external <laughs> structure on things? Well, in some ways, what you're describing is uh, one of the standard uh, forms of philosophical thinking. I mean, philo it, the counterexample is kind of the, uh, you know, one of the first things you learn to do uh, in arguing. Somebody says something and you think, well, let's see if I can find a counterexample to that. That is like find, looking for a test particle. And then if you do find the counterexample, then you move back and try to either revise the theory that it's counter to or start over. So that, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's certainly not, um, not alien to what I'm doing. And I don't think I'm motivated by that. Um, it may be that because I'm writing to an audience and in, inside of a literature that, for which that's a standard form, it comes out hmm. looking like what I'm looking for is counterexamples. But... Um, but really, there, to take the two different cases you gave me, I mean, a lot of times I find myself um, say, starting with what is presented as a dichotomy or, um, you know, it's, it's either this view or this view and arguing that it's actually something that is in between or takes some of one view and some of the other. So it's a kind of... Um, synthesis or dialectical thing. But I, I think that comes from a habit I also learned as an undergraduate from um, one of my wonderful philosophy teachers, Robert Foglin, who was a kind of master lecturer who would uh, approach every, every book or every work uh, looking for the best in it uh, so that you could make a really good case. First you read Hume, and you think, ah, oh, he's right about everything, and then you read Kant, and he's right about everything, but they are opposite to each other. So I think it's that habit of approaching other views in a way that looks to be convinced, and then saying, well, they can't, I can't be convinced about both of them because they're inconsistent right. with each other, so then I try to find a way of making, keeping the most of both of them um, and getting it. But when you when consistent, uh, um, so let me let me ask a question in a somewhat different way, um, and let's let's be concrete. Um, so when you're uh, when you're writing about meaningfulness, and this yeah. is a classic uh, uh, example of, of what you've just described. Uh, there's one way, and there's another way, and I want to get I want to hear what uh, your view of the details yeah. and so forth. Um, and then you start thinking, or, or then you present the case that well, there are some things that don't fit. This, right. this, this framework, right? right. Um, 
is so that's the way you've presented it. Is that the way that it, you yourself started thinking about it, came to that realization, or is that a is that a mode of presentation that that you've naturally chosen? Because it, w one of the things that I that I get, and I may be just inferring way too much improperly from from the little that I've that I've experienced, but it's almost as if I get the sense that. Um, I mean, you mentioned Kant, but you seem almost the anti-Kant to the extent that you're not looking at building these these rigid hierarchical, let's forget about hierarchical, the, the, yeah. these rigid, all-encompassing frameworks and systems, right, right that, ex that will explain everything. It's not like, I, I get the sense that there is no all-encompassing world, according to Susan Wolf, that exists. Right. And I'm not suggesting that's overwhelmingly unique. I'm sure there are other people for whom one could say the same thing. Right. But that seems to be a constant theme for uh, when, when, I, when I read what you're, you're writing. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is fair. But, um, but I think that's always, it's an inner struggle that, I, that li uh, like a lot of people who go into philosophy, uh, there's a real appeal to a total system in which everything fits. The desire for getting it right requires, you know, not letting yourself just, uh, you know, force everything into a, a, a perfect system because it would keep the system. So I just find myself continually thinking our desire for a perfect system of anything, whether it's of morality or of the world of values or, or whatever, um, keeps making philosophers distort the truth in order to get it to fit into a system. So it does seem that um, when I find I have something to say, it's usually because I think all these other people are distorting right. by you know, overgeneralizing or over-interpreting um, so as to make everything fit. Right, right. trying to fit so, everything, yeah. jam everything into right. one perfect So that does framework. seem to be a, you know, it, it's not something I do on purpose. It's just... Well, it's, it's an aspect right. of your character, though, right? I, yeah, Is that fair? Yes, yeah. yes. right. Um, Right. And I'm very sympathetic to that, so I think it's a great aspect of your character. <laughs> great. Love that. Right. So I think this is somewhat related to that. So as I'm sliding towards meaningfulness, that is to say the book, I'm not yeah. implying that I myself am sliding towards <laughs> meaningfulness. No, we all, we all try <laughs> to slide towards meaningfulness. Um, a comment mm -hmm. that people have made on this book is that, uh, and again, these are people who are not necessarily academics, although academics, some academics certainly say similar things. Oh, wonderful, finally somebody is bridging this gap or moving towards bridging this gap between philosophy and psychology. And so that's a, these are words that get thrown around. Uh, you look skeptical, but I've, I've, yeah. I've seen these words actually written. Oh, okay. and, and, and to the objective observer, that's, that's a strange thing to say because you think, well, you're talking about human motivations and human desires and, and and beliefs and morality, well, this has to do with how people act in their everyday world. This is the business of philosophy. Surely when Socrates was, was walking around the Agora uh, and asking people how they live the good life and how they know what good is and, and how they should conduct themselves and behave, there, there, is no, um, there is no barrier between philosophy and psychology. It may be in terms of how people classify books or, or, or what have you, but it's all part of the same effort at trying to understand aspects of the human condition and how we should behave and how we should move forwards and so forth. Um, so I think I know the answer to my first question, which is do you think that there has been 
a distinction that's evolved over time, at least in, in the, the methodology and the approach between, uh, between philosophy and psychology? And if so, do you think consciously or otherwise your work is involved in, in some ways, redressing any gap which may exist? Uh, well, so there's a f I was surprised actually to hear that as a comment about my work because um, because I don't make use of any actual, at least in the things that I've written uh, about this so far. I don't mean uh, technical psychology. Right, I, mean, I don't make use of right. any technical psychology. Sure. So bridging sure. the gap between the disciplines is not something that I would sure. uh, ordinarily be described as maybe, doing, maybe whereas the there are a lot of people who do actually try to do that. So hmm. there, there is a, a growing field, or maybe it's just a growing label to something that's been part of philosophy all along, called moral psychology. But moral psychology as a, well, it, as a description is a description that can describe something that's just, that's philosophy about the human psyche, or it can describe psychology about morality and moral reasoning and moral, mm. you know, motivations. Uh, it, and so my work, a, a lot of my work is moral psychology of the first kind. That is, I'm interested in the psychology of what it is to live an ethical life and of the various features of the human psyche that are relevant to the capacity to live an ethical life and things like that. Right. Um, but I'm, I usually approach it in a way that's not at all kind of social scientific. That is, I'm kind of, you know, just... Right, I'm talking more about the motivations rather, th rather than the actual particular linguistical devices or, or academic constructs or anything like that. Right. I, I, I just mean uh, not so much as a, as a prescription, but writing in clear, unadulterated prose, uh, what's driving us? Why we're doing what it is that we're doing, which, right. which is a core aspect of, of psychology, one would imagine. Yes, right. Um, but not in a not in an academic way, but not in a not in a self help way either. I mean, right. you're very clear that you're not having a prescription. You read my book, and you'll you'll understand meaningfulness, or right. you'll live a meaningful life, or or, or anything like that. Right. Um, and and maybe what I'm saying, or w maybe what I'm trying to say, is again this notion of accessibility. That if I'm somebody on the outside of I'm outside of academia altogether, and I'm saying, okay, well, what do psychologists do? Well, they understand humans and what. Uh, what drives humans and what should drive us all and how we understand our feelings and our and ourselves and so forth that would be i guess the the, the guy on the streets uh, perspective and then if you would ask the same guy on the street what do philosophers do well philosophers think about the origin of god and they think about uh, 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 it's not clear what the guy on the street would think that philosophers do, but right. uh, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but there would be there would be some sense of something maybe a little bit more more grandiose that has to do with metaphysics and 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 I, uh -huh. I would think and, and that sort of thing. Um, anyway, so I'm um, let, let's let's get to to happiness because I've I've myself have tried to jam you into a theoretical framework that doesn't necessarily apply and you've resisted as well you should have uh, so let's talk about what oh 
well, what you're actually saying in, in that work and before we move on to how those, um, how those views may have changed and the responses that other people have given and, and so forth and, and, and all the rest of that. So um, I can ask you to describe it, but maybe what would be best, since I'm supposed to be the curious non-specialist, is to give you a, a very, very basic precy of what I took away from that. And then you tell me uh, if that's right or if that's wrong and, and, and what I'm missing. So as I said before, my basic sense is there are two, um, um, you frame it in terms of two areas that have been ascribed to human motivation, namely self-interest and this notion of duty or uh, morality, what, what's, why should I be acting in such and such a way? Um, and, and you say there is a, not only there, are, there is a large category of things that don't fit that particular framework, right. but that that within that category are things that are particularly resonant with all of us, so much so, in fact, that, uh, that, that most of us would say these are the things that are most significant and most important and give our lives a sense of meaning. And that should, we should expand our, our understanding and our framework so that we can include that. And then you come up with your particular um, um, idea of what that entails, namely this combination of a, of a subjective aspect of your what is it, the fulfillment principle or something, the, the idea that you should do what it is that you're doing, uh, you should follow your passions, basically, uh, subjectively, and then your passions should, on the objective side, your passions should actually be sufficiently objectively meritorious and worthy. And right. so there's this, there's this combination of subjectivity and objectivity. Right. So that's my sense of what it is that you've done. Is that, uh, is that yeah, reasonable? That was very good, is that, actually. Is, is, yes. is that not that? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I think I'm probably going to edit all that out because I think it makes a lot more sense for, for you to actually say uh, uh, what, what you're doing because otherwise it makes it look like I'm just trying to uh, show off that I read your book. So. Um, well, it was probably better than I would. No, 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 no. no. So, so, so let, me, let me start again okay. and, and ask you to, um, to give me... Um, a basic synthesis or basic overview of of what you uh, what you wrote in meaningfulness and and why you thought it was important. Okay. Uh, well, I start out with the um, with the claim that we tend, both in philosophy and in ordinary life, to to describe to describe and characterize our reasons and motives in, in one of two ways. I, either I'm doing it for myself, for self-interest, to make me happier, or I'm doing it because uh, I have a duty to do it, or some impersonal sense of what's good or, or right is driving me. So there's a kind of dichotomy between personal, meaning self-interested motives, and impersonal motives, usually identified with duty. Uh, so if you ask someone, why are you doing that? Their answer is likely to come into in one of those other, one of those two categories. Either I'm doing it because I like it, or because I want to, or because it's best for me, or I'm doing it because I have to, or I ought to, or for the sake of the world. Right. And um, it's my sense that, that's, that neither of those accurately captures a, 
a very large part of what I and a lot of people, probably middle-aged people <laughs> especially, do. Um, moreover, they, it doesn't capture a lot of what are the most important things that we do. or I mean, it doesn't explain why we're doing them. Right. And you give very concrete examples. You talk about this idea of visiting your brother in the hospital, or you talk about this idea of, of, of making a dress for your daughter for Halloween. And, right. and neither one of these things, uh, both, of, both of which are concrete examples of the sorts of things that people do all the time and consider important and right. meaningful, fit right. into either one of these two schemes. You're not doing it because you're, uh, because you're, you're maximizing your self-interest, clearly. Right. Visiting your brother in the hospital is not something that, that causes you this enormous amount of, of personal pleasure and satisfaction all, all the time. Right. Um, and at the same time, you're not doing it because you, you feel that you're making the world a better place or that it fits into this overall sense of, of you know, moral structure and so right. forth. Um, and so again, I would say, at the risk of sounding vaguely sycophantic, that this is very, very helpful to people when they're reading this because uh, rather than just looking at some philosophical argument that's structured, you're giving very concrete examples that people can, can resonate with. So anyway, that's my right. two cents worth. Right. Um, well, so those examples, those are good examples. Um, well, they're your examples. But <laughs> no, no, I didn't mean... <laughs> I mean, oh, good examples, brilliant. No. <laughs> Uh, there, but they are excellent illustrations of where I go with the right. sense that, look, I don't do everything either because it's good for me or because it's the best thing for the world. Examples of why do I visit my brother in the hospital, which is not particularly pleasant, nor is it the most important thing I could do for the world. Why do I lose sleep making the groundhog? costume for my daughter's Halloween parade. It was a groundhog costume. You didn't it mention was, that. It was. It uh, was. Yeah. Oh, I, me, one of the <laughs> other articles mentions the groundhog. Oh, okay. I have a picture I could give. Um, but why? Right. Uh, the answer in those cases, as you would expect, is because I love my brother and my daughter. So love for particular other people to start out, um, seems to me to be, the, you know, the clear example of the kinds of things that give meaning to our lives that aren't, that aren't really motivating us to do things for our sake or for the world's sake. It's for the individual person's sake or out of love for those individual people. Right. And then, at, uh, generalizing from that, um, it's not all about people. So the thought is, when you step back and say, why do I do most of what I do? Uh, the two big categories that come up is I do a lot for my friends and relatives, for the people I love, and I do a lot, in my case, for philosophy or you know, for one's work or for one's vocation or for one's, for, you know, it does, it, the idea is there are lots of things other than people that we have a deep commitment to and attachment to that I think motivates us beyond either the self-interested or the duty, uh, the duties associated with the job or the hobby or the activity in question. So, um, in the case of philosophy, I also give an example of uh, losing a lot of sleep and peace of mind. You know, trying to get an argument right and trying to. Uh, get just the right words and get just right, the right view and 
think, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for my sake? Am I doing it for the sake of the world? Well, the world doesn't care that much about philosophy. And as to my sake, if you're trying to balance how much time and effort it's required. Yeah, against what else I could be doing with it. That's probably not right either. It's somehow this idea for the sake of the truth or for the sake of good philosophy. It's, it's something that's really not captured by these other things. And there too, I think, I, I wanted to use the word love in a way that was, that's general, generalizable enough to say, in addition to loving people, and it, specifically individual people, we love fields, areas, art. I mean, you know, so in that case, it's love of philosophy that's driving me uh, to do those things. But there, too, meaning in life comes from things like that rather than from these other categories. So that was sort of where. Right. Right. And, and, and there's, so my understanding is, uh, well, let me back up and say that there is this thing called the, fulfillment principle that, that, that you talk about. Yes. Um, and so the fulfillment principle involves this idea that we are um, following our passions, we are doing what we really, what we really think is important for ourselves, we're, we're going for it, as it were. We're, right. not, we're not just living in this mundane, day-to-day, -day, dreary existence where we're, we're not really doing what it is that we want to do. And again, this is something that I think everyone can identify with and resonate with, resonate with this, this notion of getting into a rut, of seemingly having a life which is okay, but we haven't really been, we, we've somewhere along the line, we've sidetracked what it is, we've sidetracked from what we really care about and what we really think is important to us, what right. really gives us fulfillment. Um, and a lot of normal therapy and self-help and psychological practice presumably lies in discovering what that might be, what our, what our real yes. feelings are, motivations right. and desires and so forth that we have somehow pushed aside. Um, and so there is this sense, uh, again, in terms of understanding what gives us meaning uh, and maybe looked upon from this notion of, of a deathbed reflection as to, as to how we'll look back on our lives and say whether they were meaningful or not meaningful. Um, you, you identify a whole category of things that... Um, that give us a sense of fulfillment that we would drive towards, whether that's becoming uh, a better cello player or whether that's uh, um, volunteering in a, in a soup kitchen or whatever it right. happens to be. It's the sense of, yes, I haven't actually been doing that. But again, my sense is that it's not as if you, um, you were saying those are the only things. You certainly allow for self-interest, standard happiness thing. We go into a store, we want to have an ice cream. That doesn't have anything to do with this notion of fulfillment. We, we, uh, so you're quite inclusive insofar as you say, yes, there are all these things that we pursue for our self-interest and we'll right. engage in this particular deal and we'll say, hey, this makes me happy and we'll have momentary pleasures and so forth. And on the other hand, we also do feel duty, of course. We feel duty in all sorts of ways, which impinges itself on our action. But there is this classification of of, of areas that give us happiness, um, sorry, that happiness is the wrong word. There is, this, there, is this, uh, there is this area of activities that we engage in that give us some sense of fulfillment. And that's, that's one essential aspect that leads to uh, a sense of, of, of meaning in our lives. Is that, is that a fair way to, to put it? Uh, yes. It's, <laughs> it, well, it, 
Yes, but so there, I guess there are two different things I right. want to say as you're wallowing as you're giving this kind of <laughs> summary, right? Uh, the, where I think you're going is um, is that in trying to figure out what is it to what is this area of things that give meaning to our lives? Um, I already started with love, which right. has to do with and acting in a way that. Um, that's enhancing or contributing to or realizing something you love is where the fulfillment, the subjective feeling of fulfillment comes in. I mean, it's, it's fulfilling to do stuff you love to do or have a passion right. or to do stuff with or on behalf of something you love. But that love doesn't that's have to be a person, like, like we it were saying before be with, with your daughter right. and your, and the, and your right. brother Right, so in the when we say find your passion, usually we're thinking not about in a, a human being we're thinking about a, an activity you're passionate about right. but then as you know um and in in the spirit of finding the test case perhaps here of like that sounds right but it depends on what you've got a passion for right. so then i want to say yes it i mean fulfillment isn't a, is a deep feature of meaningfulness but not anything that you could be fulfilled by will actually give you meaning so that's one direction to go in, and I'm sure we'll yeah, come that. back to that. The, um, in talking about, well, there's things that make you happy, and there are things that fulfill you, and there are things that you do out of duty. Those are overlapping. There, there's no reason, actually, to think uh, so there can't be something that does all three of those things, um, and certainly lots of, almost anything that you find fulfilling in some, I mean, it's Feeling fulfilled or finding something fulfilling is a positive emotion, even if it's not the same as pleasure. Um, and so it's going to be a very uh, fuzzy distinction between right. what, what makes you happy and what is fulfilling. Right. So, so the way to look at this may be in your non-system, if I can take a systematized yeah, right. view of your non-system, yes. um, you have... You have happiness, uh, pursuing self-interest, what I would call getting the ice cream cone uh, yes, right. over here. Then you have this, uh, these, these things that can, this self, uh, strike that. So then, then you have uh, the, the meaningfulness business over here. Yes. You're pursuing your passions, your, your love for, the manifestation of love for a person or an object or an activity or what have you. And you have duty and acting in such a way that uh, Immanuel Kant might be proud and all the rest of that stuff yeah. over, over here. And that, right. and that all of that, that whole spectrum um, is, in, is involved, at least potentially, when you look at the motivations for individual people's actions. Uh, and at this point, there's no point in, th there's no benefit to necessarily trying to draw any strict boundaries between them. Is that, is that a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, right. There's no benefit to trying to draw strict boundaries. I, I don't. I mean, I, they're not exclusive of each other. Right. And I think often we don't really notice which which of these categories our right. motivations fit into it at so, all. So maybe my diagram right. wasn't also very good because it's it's logically possible that you could have all three. Um, with, the, in the, the, with respect to the right. same so, so thing. So if I have this linear I, thing, then you can't have all uh, three, I guess. So so that's why it should. Well, be but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, oh, okay. Yeah, so, maybe so you just need different layers of 
Diagrams. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah. can have a circular diagram or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But, 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 but at any rate, um, so one way to look at this is to, again, look at this as, a, as including this, um, this third and, for us, personally, very significant category, which has been overlooked in, in all of this. But again, right. uh, no strict boundaries, no uh, pretense that, that of mutual exclusivity and, and, and any of that. So l let's get back to this idea of this is necessary, that is to say, this notion of pursuing one's passion uh, to, to having a meaningful and fulfilled life in this fulfillment principle, but it's not sufficient, as you were alluding to before, that it's not just a question of, uh, I want to sit around, what makes me satisfied is doing uh, Sudokus all day long, or, or another uh, example that you gave, which particularly bothered me, actually, because I tend to do Sudokus more than I should. A lot of people. And I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I recognize it's not terribly meaningful. Uh, I, I recognize, in fact, right. it's not meaningful at all. Um, and something which is even, even more meaningless, uh, you give an example of somebody hand-copying the works of Tolstoy, or at least yes, some of the right. works of Tolstoy. Um, so again, if that's your passion, we can respect that, and there can be a whole, we can have a whole separate discussion on, on, on freedom and liberties and all the rest of that. But I think most people would certainly agree that that's not a terribly meaningful thing to be doing. So one needs something else. Yes. Now, I hope we can have a time to go back to this. Most people would agree, but not everyone, having given talks on this subject, sure. I know that not everyone does agree, and so we'll want to go back to so let's, how let's, to deal let's, with that. But right. first, so, so, so tell me what you think, and then we'll go back to some, some criticisms about who, who would disagree. Okay, so... Um, my thought is that that what we find fulfilling and what we think is meaningful is what we th sorry, sorry for one, one sec oh okay good I can rethink how long is this car alarm going to be going that's it okay, okay. All right, so where were we? Um, what we find fulfilling and what we... Right, but um, you had, the had an examples of, um, of oh, doing Sudokus or something. Right, like, right, could right. someone... Right. If someone were to find that fulfilling. fulfilling, understanding that most people don't actually find it fulfilling. I mean, we do a lot of Sudokus, but, uh, and we, en we enjoy them to an extent. Sometimes we keep doing them even when we don't enjoy them, but we can't really <laughs> give them up. I mean, right, I... It's an example from personal experience, of course. <laughs> but, um, but if someone found, found it fulfilling the way other people find fulfilling, you know, working in a soup kitchen or, or writing poetry or something, um, it seems to me that would be a shame and that we would say that is not, in fact, meaningful. There's something weird going wrong there, um, which, you know, trying to work it out, it seems to me that when we find something fulfilling, it's usually, maybe always, because we take it to be something worth doing that, we're all, that we also enjoy or love or uh, identify with. And the problem with Sudokus is they're not really worth doing. They're a waste of time. They're just a, you know, or or an, uh, 
an entertainment, a, a, you know, a, a little challenge, but it's not going anywhere, doing anything. It's not an accomplishment of any kind. Right. Um, so the more general thought is that, um, that meaningful activities are activities that uh, we find fulfilling, but that are worth being fulfilled by, or as I put it in a slogan, it, uh, it's when subjective attraction meets objective attractiveness, when you love something worthy of love and can do something right. good with it or about it. So this is, so, so right, so there's, right. there's this combination of, there's a two-part uh, aspect to, this, to, to something being meaningful, as right. you say, there's the subjective attraction, you have to, uh, you have to be passionate about something, you have to love something or more right. manifestations of someone or how, whatever it is, right. and that has to be ob objectively deemed worthy. Right. Uh, so the obvious uh, difficulty with this, or one of the obvious difficulties that you uh, receive is, well, who are you to be uh, deeming something yeah. worthy? Right. Uh, and, and if you're appealing to some objective scale, then where the heck does this obje objective scale come from? Um, and 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 uh, from from my perspective, I can't make any distinction between doing sudokus all day long, or, or or working in a soup kitchen because I don't have this objective framework by which I can appeal to uh, uh, and uh, and and make that decision. So so how do you defend yourself against that? Right. Um, well, the tendency to to raise the kinds of objections or, or skepticism that you just raised, uh, I see as a tendency to get uh, metaphysical very fast, right? And so my main answer is, that's not what I'm saying, <laughs> right? I'm not, uh, I mean, it would be nice to have, to, to have the answers to these enormous metaphysical questions, which I'm really interested in. Is there objective value? Where does it come from? How do we get at it? Um, but thinking at a more human, down-to-earth scale, I think we all do make these distinctions all the time. And of course they're fallible, but you know, you say, I don't have the perspective to know whether Sudokus are any different from from working at a soup kitchen in terms of value, and I think, really? I mean, it's not. You know, uh, ha have you never had the thought? You know, oh, you know, what should I do? You know, is, are, these are doesn't matter. But, I mean, Bentham has this famous comment that pushpin is no better than poetry. Uh, isn't that, isn't that pushpin and poetry? Yeah. Yes, uh, pushpin being, you know, a kind of mindless game. The Sudoku of the Victorian era, I guess. But, um, and you think, that's not actually what most of us think. And, I, and using an example like poetry might sound very elitist, and, but it's not really a, I don't think it has anything to do with elitist. You can talk about the difference between playing solitaire and taking a walk with your friend. And right. Yeah, you know, are not they equally valuable? No, they're not equally valuable. <laughs> right, and you're not making right. a distinction between poetry and working in a soup kitchen. You're making a distinction between no, poetry, exactly. and poetry and playing Sudoku and playing all day. Sudoku all day. Right. Yeah. So, um, so the first answer is most of us do have in our ordinary life a, uh, a vocabulary in which we do describe certain things as 
a waste of time. I should, you know, I should have gotten away from this video game an hour ago. Rather, right? I just, it was a waste of time. Something that we wouldn't say if we were making a nice dinner or, you know, taking a walk or something. so. So I think the distinction is part of ordinary life, and um, and in part by saying I think meaning. In saying, suggesting that meaningfulness is a matter of uh, loving things worthy of love, uh, I'm trying to appeal to that and encourage people to once in a while look at what they're spending their time doing and what the, whether because they're passionate about it or not and say, is this worthy of love? and answering as best they can from their own experience with it. It's not that I want um, a theory from outside or some set of experts to come in and say, let's apply this system to your life and let, let yourself be steered by that. And I think that's important uh, as a non-specialist. It's one of the things that's very, very refreshing about your writing, and it ties into what I alluded to earlier. Because I think people have a certain skepticism about philosophical approaches being relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. And part of that skepticism, I think, is tied into this notion that you so have eloquently expressed as getting metaphysical very quickly. Right. If you, this sort of thin edge of the wedge argument, that as soon as you say something, someone's going to generalize it to something hugely abstract. Well, value, how can you say value? There has to be some big systematic thing out there. And who are you to be able to say this? Um, and the, the, the difficulty with that, of course, is that then you can't do anything. Uh, you, you, you find that if you have to wait until this grand superstructure has been developed before you can make a, a, a meaningful decision as to you know, whether to turn right or turn left or something, like right. that, it's not going to help you very much in, your, in, in, in understanding how, what human motivations could be or should be or, or what have you. Um, and then the second thing that I think is, is, uh, is attractive about this is notwithstanding the fact that you bypass a knee-jerk response that some philosophers might have of getting metaphysical too quickly, you're able to actually ground it in Aristotle, which I, I just thought was brilliant, actually. Uh, so you establish your street cred, and you can appeal to uh, normal people all at the same time. And right. so you <laughs> Uh, Aristotle did that. Right? Yeah, no, but That's I see. Right. I was yeah. I was unaware. So I learned about this word uh, endoxic, which yes, I which right. I hadn't uh, I, I hadn't heard of before. Um, so so tell me a little bit about about that. About the endoxic method. Exactly. So I am not an Aristotle expert, but there is um, a, uh, a section in the at the beginning of the of his greatest work on ethics that uses this. Um, I mean, the idea is in trying to figure something out some big, the meaning of some big concept or the truth about some fundamental idea, um, you look at all the different sources of authority there might be and try to, um, well, reconcile a lot of them. So one source of authority is the masses, as Aristotle would put it. I mean, what most people think, or what are, what are the popular views out there? Uh, they don't become popular for no reason at all. So there's got to be something that encourages people to think these things. And you take those as respectable um, 
suggestions or evidence that there's something right about these. But then you also look at the experts, if there are experts. In Plato's case, he was looking at trying to understand what the good, the good life for a human being is. And so he said, you know, most people seem to think it's happiness. So some people think it's honor. But then there's Plato. What did Plato think? Because he, Plato, is the brilliant expert. Turns out he didn't have such useful things to say about the good life, according to Aristotle. But, but you would take those you things into account anyway. also, right? Yeah. And then you you try to, um, you know, revise, refine, you know, look more attentively at these things until you get a theory that. And but the idea was, if you get, if your final view is one that makes these other these other views. It shows that there's something right about these other views. This is where, this is why, if this is the truth, then this is why a lot of people will think this slightly off thing is the answer and why some other people might think this other thing is the answer. So if you get something that will make the most of, of the popular views out there, ideally also the expert views out there, then that's, that's confirmation that you're getting right. close to the... It's, right meaning, it's meaningful data, at, at any rate, to right. be able to take into account. So right. uh, the, the, the analogy, I guess, um, that's related to what we were talking about is everybody, or at least the vast majority of people would say, well, come on. Clearly, sitting around doing Sudokus all day, you might think you're, you're fulfilled, but that's not the same. That's not uh, enough. That doesn't lead to any really meaningfulness in your, in your life, as opposed to uh, going out and helping a friend or, 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 or working in a soup kitchen or, or maybe becoming a, a, a poet or, or, or what have you or right. news presenter or wh whatever it is, something that's a little bit more, uh, more meaningful, right. um, depending on the station, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, okay, so, there, so my sense is, uh, yes, you recognize it's a problem that logically... Uh, you, if you're appealing to something objective out there uh, in terms of making assessments, um, you don't have a complete theory to be able to say this is seven and a half on the objectivity scale and that's four and a half and therefore that's... Right. Uh, but nonetheless, that shouldn't stop us because we all do make these judgments. We realize that, uh, that that's inside of us. And, and it's, as you say, um, it, it, it's... It's something that's actually going on right now. I mean, everybody's doing it according to their own particular value scale, so it's an important aspect of how we're behaving. Right. Um, go ahead. Well, so I, there are a couple other things I, I'd want to say Please. in in direction of defending um, talking in terms of there being a distinction between more worthy and less worthy pursuits and things to do. Um, so one is... Of course, it would be nice to have a kind of general story to tell about these are the kinds of things that are worthwhile, these are the kinds of things that are not worthwhile. I mean, it's a philosophically interesting subject, like what's, what are you, valuable ways to spend one's time or what, you know, what contributes to the good stuff in the world or something like that. Um, and there are various ways you can approach that. Um, I mean, it, it's a philosophical subject in its own right, and there are probably a lot of different philosophical ways you can kind of build your theory. Another somewhat less philosophical way is to just pool our 
um, our thoughts as ordinary people of what things seem. I mean, you start out making these ordinary distinctions, but you don't have to each, per each person do it separately. I mean, the more we learn about what other people think, both other people within our community, people across the world, people over the ages, um, and really come to understand each other's perspectives, ideally that will actually make us um, better at getting a kind of global sense of the variety of things that are good and how they can be good and how they can enhance life. For, um, so th there is a kind of communal enterprise that I imagine as being able to contribute to the answer to the general question. Right. Um, so th and so in that context, the question, who's to say what's valuable? Well, no individual is to say it, but a communal uh, interest in exploring the range of things that are valuable and discussing and articulating why they're valuable would be... Valuable. About, exactly. So that's one thing to say. Right. The other thing is, um, is to talk about how this distinction might work even from the point of view of an ind individual. Like we, we make the, uh, uh, as I was saying, we do seem to make judgments of what's worthwhile and what isn't worthwhile. And one place in, in which that might show itself that I think gives some kind of um, confirmation to my views on meaningfulness is we sometimes look back on a period of our lives, maybe the period we're still in, and say, this isn't as good as I thought it was, or I didn't think about whether it was good, and now that I think about it, it's not good. I mean, good is maybe the wrong word. I mean, I, I, um, so... Fulfilling, maybe, or so. Well, I was thinking more of um, something more, an experience that was more like the scales falling from your eyes, where um, you've been really engaged in your um, uh, career as a... a corporate lawyer trying to make partner or something and without meaning to offend any Oh, let's just find corporate lawyers. Corporate oh, lawyers uh, right, yeah, right. <laughs> Some of my best relatives are corporate lawyers. But I, best but, relatives yeah, is right, the same yeah. as best friends. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, anyway, what was... Uh, the scales falling from your eye. Yes, where you might sort of suddenly say, you know, I've been devoting all kinds of energy to this goal and I've been thinking... Uh, either the goal of making partner as if that was a really important good for me or maybe the goal of defending my client um, on the assumption that that was a worthwhile thing to do and you step back and you say actually this is either a very shallow goal or this is actually a um, suspicious you know goal I mean, morally suspicious goal, or I mean, there, there are various ways you might react to it, at which point the thought that you've been spending your life even passionately pursuing it will suddenly make you think, I've got to change something. There's something wrong with this. And that's a case in which it's your own view of your life where you either thought or maybe took for granted that what you were doing was valuable, then you suddenly right. open your eyes and say, it's not valuable. Right. And that's the kind of experience that might well lead someone to think, I need 
to find something more meaningful to do with my life, or my life isn't as meaningful as I had thought it was, that suggests that it really is part of our concept of meaningfulness that we want what we're doing to be worthwhile and not just something that's, that we're passionate about. And this has nothing to do with the problem of objectivity, because it's the same person according to that same person's criteria as to what makes something meaningful. The scales fall from their eyes and they think, oh gosh, according to whatever it is that I think is meaningful, I haven't really been living a meaningful life up until this point. So, and uh, so the, there's no issue with... So I, I actually think that is object. I mean, it might not have to do with the problem of objecti objectivity understood as a philosophical problem, but I do think that is objectivity. That objectivity, or the kind of objectivity that I think is important here... Because they're referencing objectivity in the their ob evaluation the, of meaning. It has to do with the idea that um, I can be wrong about how good something is. Uh, so the opposite of objectivity is subjectivity. Subjectivity would suggest that whatever I think is right is right for me. Whatever I think is good is good for me. But if you actually wake up and say, I thought it was good, but I was wrong, that just shows that you aren't a subjectivist, really, because you did think it was good, but right. it wasn't good. But, I mean, but it's your, you yourself, not some other authority who is imposing that is on imposing you. this on you that's that's doing that and it's not like well i used to think this was good now i think this is good i've changed my mind that's not actually the experience i'm referring to i'm referring you know it's this experience of i didn't understand or appreciate right. before what i now appreciate right so this is you could be wrong then too no no sure but <laughs> it's this notion of i guess there well, to, to pick up on that. So there's this notion of evolution of, of, of these things, uh, evolution of our understanding of these things, or evolution of the judgments that we necessarily make with respect to these things, which can happen at a subjective, okay, maybe I'm not using these words correctly, it can happen at a personal level. Yes, exactly. Uh, or, or it can happen at a societal level. I mean, we can yes. all say uh, things like, well, we used to think that uh, uh, Art is a good Vermeer example is, here because, yeah, right, exactly. because we, so you know. Vermeer was a nobody, or maybe yeah, not a nobody, but not, 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 not Cezanne, a, maybe. Right? Sure, <laughs> yeah. but, but if, you right. were, if you were looking to buy a Vermeer in the, in the 18th century, or the, even, even the mid 19th century, it wasn't actually that difficult to do. Whereas if you want to try really? to buy, yeah, I mean, if you look at, at these guys, I mean, it was, it was expensive, but it wasn't super Vermeer expensive. Was like, look at the Frick. Look at the Frick collection, right? And I they, do. most of these things were bought in the 1910 or or 1890s or whatever it is. He had a lot of money, but they weren't nearly as valuable as they are today, right? Or maybe the 18th century or what? Okay, Cezanne is another so, example. It doesn't mean, really matter the, who, well, who, we, who we pick. It's not a, right, but the examples, the important thing is not so much about how expensive artists become as by what, how the world judged them. Oh, this that is, is America. I thought, I thought value and money were exactly the same. Uh, well, but the, I'm not, I don't actually know, I mean, about Vermeer, whether people ever thought he was not a great painter. But with the Impressionists, there, or Van Gogh, I mean, there, you know, there's an enormous sure. history of how they were rejected by the experts in art, by the Paris Salon, that, you know, this stuff is junk. But um, we now think they were mistaken. They right. didn't know how to look at these paintings. They didn't appreciate what was going on. But um, it was a mistake. So, um, I mean, that's just a good example of a social mistake, that society didn't think this was worth doing, 
now they see that it was actually fantastic. And of course, I mean, there are moral examples, you know. The, all these people thought slavery was acceptable, <laughs> right? So that's, a, you know, a, perhaps a more obvious case of, you know, so, social error on what's valuable. Right. So I guess uh, um, to, to at least recap for me, the argument is that by acknowledging the existence of mistakes, potential or actual, we are necessarily implying the existence of some objective criterion right. by which we can measure those things. Because otherwise, we would be in this subjective, uh, whatever we like is tautologically good. Right. And we would have no yes. backdrop whatsoever to make those, those sorts of judgments. Right. Very good. Um, so, uh, so let me let me uh, recap uh, from the ob objective uh, observer's perspective, and then come to a, a prodding question because I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So, okay, Susan, you've made me realize that there are more things in heaven and earth in terms of human motivations. It's not just self-interest. It's not just duty. Moreover, you've been able to give me some. Uh, uh, rough guide as to this 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 third category called meaningfulness, um, how it comes about. Namely, it comes about through a combination of following one's passions and love, broadly yeah. broadly uh, defined, yes. um, combined with some notion of objective uh, criteria. And you had this uh, subjective and objective expression that I can't remember right now, but. What subjective attractiveness meets right. objective attraction. Right. No, subjective attraction meets objective attractiveness. <laughs> right. Okay. <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> so, yep. so there's so there's that framework. Okay. So you've convinced me uh, that, that that that's true. Now I think so. What? So why should I? So so you've you've been able to tell me that there's uh, there's a broader category of uh, of of. Not only describing human motivations, but maybe human motivations themselves that philosophers haven't really paid much attention to hitherto. Right. Why should I care? What 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 does this what does this do for me uh, on the street, and what might it do for me in the in the academy uh, if right. I were a philosopher? Right. So, the book is called Meaning in Life and Why It Matters, and so this is a this is the so why does it matter? Right. right? Um, and right, there are two. There are two levels of question. There's why does it matter to me as an individual, and why does it, and why does it matter? So well, there's one question, that, which is why does it matter to me as an individual to live a meaningful life, to think about living a meaningful life, or to have the concept of meaningfulness in life. And then there are questions about why does it matter from an academic academic perspective, perhaps, right. um, to have that set of concepts. Um, okay, so the quick, the quick answer to the first question, the personal question, is um, Well, first of all, it, why does it matter to live a meaningful life? Like, who, why, is it even a, a good for us to live a meaningful life rather than just a happy life? Um, I, I think what meaning in life does for us from the inside is 
it gives us something to say when we try to reflect on our life from the point of view of, um, you know, being one smack, a speck in a, in a vast universe or, I mean, I think of, you know, the deathbed uh, scenario when you sort of step back and say, you know, what have I made of my life? Is it something I can be proud of? Um, that's where having been engaged in things that are, that are worth doing, from some perspective, it's more objective than I enjoyed it, um, gives you an answer. And presumably it's an answer you want even when you're not on your deathbed. You want to be able to, be, to look at your life in a way that you can be proud of. I, I talked earlier about what if someone outside of philosophy walks in on this colloquium right, and think like, ah, you know, they're talking, they're talking about this little tiny thing in these, you know, fancy ways. Like, why are they spending all this energy? Who, right? I mean, that really is the same thought. But you know, it, I would not be proud of thinking that, uh, of having someone think I'm spending my life engaged in some nitpicky little question that seven other people in the world care about. Um, even more, do you not want your life to be spent wasted on the equivalent of Sudoku? So, um, so that's why you should live a meaningful life. Why should you have the concept of a meaningful life? First of all, I'm not sure you really need one. If you're, I mean, if you're living a meaningful life, it, it's not necessary that everyone have that concept or, or notice that they're living it. it. It can just happen, and that's fine. However, there is a real risk I think in, an increasing risk in some, something having to do with the way society is moving us, um, that we will go astray and, you know, spend too much time doing video games or pursuing making partner in a, in a law firm. And so, um, on the one hand, it's not a bad idea to step back once in a while and notice whether you're you're living the kind of life that you can regard as meaningful, as something you can be proud of. I also think it's important to have the category as a category that um, that keeps us from falling into the trap of thinking, if I can't justify it from a self-interested perspective or from a ethical perspective, I mean, I don't mean that you can't justify it at all, but if, if it's not the best thing I can be doing for me or the best thing I can be doing for the world, then there's something wrong with it. Uh, that can be problematic both in, um, in making us want to distort what we're doing so that it fits into one of those categories or in making us reject doing something because it doesn't fit in one of those categories. So um, to tell uh, a story probably would have fit in better earlier. When one of the things that got me thinking about this topic in the first place was a remark uh, my brother-in-law made on a visit here. He was explaining some big life decision he was making. Maybe he was changing jobs or quitting his job or something. And he, I, anyway, he said, "Because after all, um, what's the point of doing something if it isn't fun?" He said. Um, it was a rhetorical question, question that 
in many contexts, many people would have just said, yeah, exactly, right, you know. But for some reason, I thought to myself, gosh, if that's true, then I'm really not living the right kind of life. Because, I, you know, I was, my children were young at the time, and I was, you know, sort of going back and forth between trying to do all these things I needed to do for them and do all these things to, you know, for my students and for, get my writing done so that I would get tenure. And I just thought, it's not fun, right? Whatever else it is. But on the other hand, I was totally, I mean, these were exactly what I wanted to be doing, right? Um, so it was this thought that... There's something else other than just this hedonistic Right, approach. fun was just the wrong category of right. thinking of what, um, what would be a good reason for spending a lot of your time doing something, like visiting your brother in the hospital, sewing the Halloween costume, or, you know, at a grander scale, um, you know, adopting a child. Or, so, um, so it is important to have the concept of meaningfulness just as a way of clearing, um, clearing the ground for considering our lives and evaluating our activities in ways that weren't coming from these two other dichotomies. Right. So that's the kind of personal level answer. Right. Uh, I, I want to just interject for a moment sure. before you get to the professional answer yeah. um, with something that I probably should have mentioned earlier as well, but it's the power of editing. So you see, yes. we can mix and match and right. put these things okay. all over the place. Uh, a really revealing example that you gave to me, which resonated with me, was this idea of the drug Sisyphus. Yes. So uh, here's this, this story of, of this, uh, uh, this guy who's punished by the gods and forced to roll a, a rock uphill all day long and has his liver. Anyway, all sorts of nasty things happen to him. And he's, he's basically perpetually rolling this rock, right. um, which is a, a terrible punishment because it requires a lot of physical exertion and it's boring as all get out. And, um, and it's, it's something that... Um, that he clearly um, is not happy with as the gods intended. Um, and then the hypothetical comes in to play, uh, which as I understand it uh, was from somebody else. Yeah, it? Richard Taylor. Right, another right. one of uh, your esteemed colleagues came up with a great example um, of what if the gods would take pity on Sisyphus and, and throw some magic god dust at him right. so that he would be very happy all of a sudden rolling this rock all day long. He would still have to do it. He would, that would still be his day job, as it were, but, right. uh, but he would no longer feel the anguish of, of the, the pain and the boredom and all the rest of that, and rolling rocks is just the greatest thing in the world. Right. And so this thought experiment corresponds to this idea of, of, of taking away any intuitive objective criterion, and all of a sudden, it's all very subjective. He's fulfilled, presumably, just tautologically, because the gods have made him fulfilled, because rolling rocks is the greatest thing in the world. Right. We would still look at that. We would still look upon him as, uh, well, there's something wrong with this, this guy. <laughs> right, yes, <laughs> right. he's rolling rocks all day long. Right. Um, and he may think that, that he's self-fulfilled, that he may, he may then find that's, you know, that's, uh, I suppose, consistent. But it sure as heck ain't meaningful what, what he's actually doing. And so there would be this tendency to, to do that. So I wanted to bring that up because to me that was a very illustrative example pointing to, as I presume your intention was, pointing to the need for some sense of objective criterion, even if we don't have a decision procedure as to how to, to bring it up. Right. Um, right. 
So uh, maybe I shouldn't have just talked and, 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 and so forth. But um, are, are there, before you get back to the professional, why does it matter? Um, are there, it, that seems like a very compelling argument to me. Right, um, good. So when you, when you make that argument to your, to your, to your colleagues, um, and again, it's the power of example, right? Because you can talk about these things in the abstract, but when you actually imagine, you put yourself in the perspective of watching this guy roll this rock all day long, uh, and we all have our examples. You know, you could have somebody on acid who's finding that they're fine, but that's all they're doing all day long, and we're thinking, okay, right. uh, that's not a meaningful existence. Um, it, it, is that... Is that a compelling example, not so much for the man on the street like myself, but is that a compelling example, is that sufficiently compelling so that um, some philosophical colleagues can start recognizing that um, maybe one should start taking that argument a little bit more seriously? Uh, well, so it works for some of the people, <laughs> some of the time. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, like most philosophical examples, you always find somebody who will say, I don't think so. So, sure. uh, right. So, how might they object to it? Um, I mean, one is to say, well, that's, and I think Richard Taylor probably had in the background. Look, there isn't anything else to be had there. If you're, if you start out as a skeptic about objective value, then you might think, look, our lives, our actual lives, are the metaphorical equivalent of rolling a stone up a hill just to have it roll down again. I mean, we, you know, we live and uh, reproduce and then they reproduce, but there's, you know, like, we're not, you know, we're just specks in a universe. We're not going anywhere with anything. It's just all coming back in, in a circle. And so the thought is life would be meaningless and absurd um, I mean, it really is from the outside, as it were, right? Um, but if we're into it, <laughs> that's all that it takes to make it meaningful for us, right? Um, and so the idea is, you know, to just take the metaphor of Sisyphus as an example of our whole lives and say, so really, you know, Sisyphus enjoying Rolling Stones is what we are, and that's all we need. I mean, it's kind of optimism within pessimism or something and I, I um and I just think that's so I, I think that's what motivated Taylor and what grabs some people um a different way to go which is more interesting is that all right yeah okay um is to say and there's an article by Joel Feinberg I it's been a long time since I've read it but it he does kind of a wonderful riff on the Sisyphus story, um, suggesting, well, it's not just a matter of whether you roll stones up the hill only to come down again, but like, what is, what are you doing as you're rolling the stone up, up the hill? Are you, um, well, I, at one point I think he gives examples of, you know, maybe you're juggling the stones or maybe you're doing, um, uh, you're doing interesting creative things so that you roll it differently each time and, um, sort of a way, you might find a way to roll a stone up a hill that has to come down and do it again that's actually creative and um, it's not just that you're drugged into liking it, but that you're actually doing remarkable, interesting, 
and legitimately valuable things with a very constrained set of parameters. Right? Okay, and that's my understanding of, and I'm no expert, but that's my understanding of what Camus himself, I mean, so the myth of Sisyphus, of course, comes from, well, it doesn't come yes. from Camus, but, no, he, no, he, but he made it famous. He was the one that started using it as a, as a paradigm of, Absurdity or meaninglessness. Right. Yes. And right. so we we get this sense of of an invocation from him, as I understand it, that we should. Yes, we are all in this position where we're rolling balls uphill all day long, right. and that's just because of the constraints of of life, the human condition. And, yes. And right. we we can't we can't necessarily break out of that or 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 with any degree of success impose some overall value structure on that whole situation right but what we can do is we can do the best we can to be as you were saying juggling the ball as we're going we can try to create meaning as it were right. in our day-to-day -day life as we are rolling the ball up the hill right and so that seems like a, a very right. parallel it's, it's very close to the Camus idea and right. um and so that idea is, uh, well, so understanding it more like Feinberg and less like Taylor, that is, it's not just that you're drugged into liking it, but right. that you're doing, you're doing something interesting with the very tight um, constraints, that constraints on opportunities that are part of the human condition. Um, that, it, you could argue, is a way of m making meaningful um, what would seem not to be meaningful from a, you know, uh, in itself. But maybe we, I mean, right. it, it, this seems to me a, an essential part of what, what you're talking about. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but so there's the bigger meaning, right? There's the bigger, okay, what's the meaning of life? What's the right. meaning of the universe? What's right. the meaning of, 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 of our existence and where is it all going and, and you know, all that stuff. So that, that corresponds to these larger constraints of the guy rolling the ball. Yes. We don't have any control over any of that stuff. Right. And, and it's not entirely clear whether it would be productive to spend a lot of time talking about that or thinking about that. Right. But what we do have control over and what, what in the meantime plays a, an awfully important role in our, in our lives, albeit consisting of going up and down hills all day long, yeah. <laughs> is, is, is actually the stuff in the middle. This is what are we doing as we're rolling the ball up the hill. And, and, and I, I think the, the only time that the parallel uh, presumably would break down is, is the fact that Sisyphus doesn't wind up at some point on his deathbed looking back at, right. at, and, right. and evaluating how well or how cleverly or how innovatively or how stimulatingly right. <laughs> he, was, right. he was rolling the ball up the hill. Right. But otherwise it seems the parallel is fairly clear. The, this idea of two types of meaning, right? Well, so, the, uh, well, there, right, there is this, there is the idea of two types of meaning and that might track the traditional question of what's the meaning of life yeah. with the question I've mainly been talking about, which is what's meaningful, uh, what makes a life a meaningful life or what's, me you know, how do you find meaning in life or how do you make lives meaningful? Um, but there are, I guess, two different ways to respond to the Sisyphus example as, as it's historically been understood by, you know, from Camus onward. Um, one is to, uh, and the reason I guess I, um, 
I found myself an opponent of Taylor, of this, this period of Taylor's philosophical work, um, is that it's not true that our lives are just matters of rolling the stone up the hill and down again so that if only we liked it, it would be meaningful. Uh, we can do more with our lives than roll a stone up our hill or play Sudokus. We can do all kinds of things from writing poetry to, um, to you know, creating world peace. I mean, you know, well, I don't know if we can, but we can at least... We try. We can at least contribute to those... To, to those good, good results, um, which might be considered the equivalent of we could juggle these stones or we could, you know, do, do so, all this other. So one thing is you have to be, sh there's no point in thinking it's all just a matter of liking the situation that we're fated to have because we're not fated to have a, a meaningless situation. But then there's the question, what kind of meaning uh, should we insist on in order to consider it meaningful? And the perspective that the Sisyphus story is encouraging is the perspective of thinking, look, in order for our life to be meaningful, really meaningful, not just subjectively meaningful, we would have to be able to do something that had a large and permanent effect on the world. And the, the problem in saying, oh, the human race is just like Sisyphus, the idea is, you know, we're, we're little specks in a vast universe and, uh, you know, we, from a cosmic perspective, there's nothing we can do that will be of any value at all. I just think, look, the cosmic perspective is not the only perspective it's worth taking. And so my thought is that meaningfulness, as opposed to the meaning of life, is a matter of quality and not quantity. So it's not a question of will it last forever or will it affect thousands of people. It's a question of will I do something good and worthwhile, which doesn't have to be worthwhile relative to a large time-space period, but just right. worthwhile, um, or will I fritter away what life I have doing nothing um, or doing bad stuff, I guess. Um. The, the, the cosmic perspective argument I've always found peculiar. Um, and, and, and here's why. I mean, th this is something which intuitively resonates with everyone. You go out in the night sky and you look up and you see all these things out there and right. you think, wow, we're obviously not that important. But uh, uh, so that's an intuitive gut feeling that, that, that you have. But on the other hand, Let's imagine that some, some time from now we were able to very, very cleverly, because it's not clear how, but very cleverly we'd be able to populate the universe, let alone the galaxy. And so let's imagine a situation where um, uh, you couldn't yeah. say that humans would Stars be an, an insignificant on speck. That, right, that on, on, a, on a cosmological scale somehow, right. very hard to whatever, would jive with the laws of physics and so forth, but it doesn't matter. But let's imagine that that was the case. So what? It, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't really change things if, if humans were if, everywhere. You know, everywhere, all over the place, and we were important all of a sudden on some quantitative level. It still wouldn't really, wouldn't really affect my life, personally. It wouldn't affect any of these broader questions about cosmological level meaning. 
Um, anyway, that that that, yeah. that 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 go ahead, sorry. Well, it's just it, it's interesting to think in that direction. I, um, that is to start with people being the way we are, and then just think now we take up a large percentage of the vast universe rather than a tiny one. Um, like, how does that make us any better? Right. right. Good, good question, and not at all. Though I, uh, having said that, I do, I just confess to being uh, subject to the sense that, be, you know, thinking of us as small um, does give me reason to reflect on, um, you know, the fact that there's this vast universe that doesn't include us or care about us encourages me to take this perspective of saying, so, you know, so justify yourself, right? Like, what are you doing with, you know? Because hmm. um, you could sort of take the perspective of a possible being from outside of your little, not just planet, but, you know, sub-community, right? Yeah. Like, what's that all about? And um, so it's one thing to think, well, now just imagine that you've populated the whole universe. It seems different to say, imagine that, there, that you were the whole universe already, so that you're not l looking at making yourself relative to an already existence, larger universe, bigger, right. but just you are the center of the universe because there's really nothing outside of you. Then the thought of having to justify yourself wouldn't, up so easily, I think. I mean, maybe it should, but I just I, psychologically, I am subject to the thought that well, respects that seems to give one pause and make one think of oneself in a different. Perhaps way. you're right. Well, historically, maybe this is why the Catholic Church wasn't so overwhelmingly motivated to justify themselves because yeah, right. they they were the whole universe. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. so uh, I I had another. Leaves, I think. Okay. Um, okay. So I had another thought, but it it it, it went away. So uh, let, let's go back to to where I interrupted you before, which was so. Uh, okay, I remember my thought, and then we'll go back. So my 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 thought was this is going to be a challenging one to edit, but uh, but I'm enjoying the conversation very much. <laughs> um, further proof, if I may, to to flog a a moribund equine, um, that, that I think all of us operate implicitly on this understanding that there is some sort of objective criteria out there in order to ascribe meaningfulness, is when you look at other people's lives who almost all of us agree actually were particularly meaningful. So you point to some of these in your book, and again, this is something which is clearly in the public consciousness. If you were to ask a person on the street who didn't necessarily have any philosophical training, who has lived a meaningful life, you will get answers like Gandhi, you will get answers like Einstein, you will get answers, uh, you, you, you will basically not get pop stars as a general rule, even right. amongst people who, who love pop stars right. and might even want to get autographs from pop stars right. and so forth. There is this understanding. Maybe Bono, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> 
I think he's transcended that. Right. Okay. Angelina Jolie. Okay. I think if you if you take your Aristotelian and doxic principle and 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 you start asking not just people of authority, whatever that means in this, but if you start looking broad brush uh, across society and you ask people who has led a meaningful life, you will get the same sort of people coming to the top of the list. That list will be, will, will be populated by people who I think you and I would have no trouble agreeing as well. Right. Those, those are people who have led meaningful lives. And, and I think that's just further proof of the idea that whether or not it has any ontological philosophical status or not, it, it, there is widespread resonance and understanding of what these words mean and, and importance ascribed to them as well by most right. people. Right. Um, right. Good. So let's get back, uh, right. if, if I may, to uh, the, where I interrupted you some time ago. Okay. So you were, you were talking about, uh, you were answering the question I asked, which is why should we care about any of this if you are someone who is not a, a professional philosopher? Uh, and... Uh, I think you gave a very comprehensive answer, although I feel free to embellish okay, if you wish. Um, but you were about to talk about why you, you might want to care about this if you actually are a professional philosopher, uh, right. an academician, and I cut you off. Right, okay. So actually, there are more categories, right? There's, there's the personal level versus the uh, professional level, if you want to call it that. But professional isn't just philosophy. It could be also from the point of view of social institution building. I mean, that, that is, there's a level, how can it matter to me that I have, a, in the living of my life, that I have the concept of meaningfulness or that I strive for meaningfulness? And then there's a question, how can it matter in a less uh, immediate way? So philosophically, I think, uh, the concern is once you recognize that meaningfulness is an important dimension of a good life, it'll, it will affect how you, I think, how you think philosophically or theoretically about the two things that I was contrasting it to, that is morality on the one hand and self-interest or happiness which aren't identical to each other, but anyway, self-interest and happiness on the other, both of which are kind of standard philosophical topics also, but that tend to be overly um, simplistic, I think, because they self-interest is often just thought of as either happiness, a pleasure, as much pleasure and little pain as possible, or getting as much of what you want as possible, preference satisfaction. But meaningfulness requires that there's, a, there's this element of objective, um, an objective perspective that isn't going to be identical to the happiest life or the life in which one gets whatever one wants. So, there, so it will affect your views on hap, happiness and self-interest, and it'll affect your views on morality, at least I think it should, in part because um, in, in part because I think I mean a lot of people doing moral philosophy or moral theory think, well, the issue is how to balance 
self-interest against the demands of the greater world. Um, and everything that isn't done from the point of view of the greater world or morality is in danger of being selfish. Um, and, but in fact, since a lot of what we do is neither selfish or for the sake of morality, um, that, that way of thinking is inevitably distorts not only what we do, but how we want to think about it. So, um, so I actually think our moral intuitions, or you know, the snap moral judgments we make, differ according to. So, here's a silly example that in an article long ago I I wrote about. Um, professors have to have hold, professors hold office hours. They announce. I will be in my office every Tuesday from 2 to 4, so whoever wants to come talk to you about things, know that they'll find you there. Right? Um, now, of course, if you're driving to your office um, and there's a building on fire and uh, somebody is inside and you, you have to rush in to save them or you choose to rush in to save them, so you're late for your office hours. That's no excusable. One, no one's going to say, you had a duty to be at your office hours. I'm sorry, that was, you know, that was wrong. Um, it, right, it's excusable. It was the right thing to do. It was rational, right? All right, now let's take some other examples. And this is against the background that at most universities, office hours, most of the time, if there isn't a test the next week or something and no one has talked to you in advance, students don't come in and look for you, but you know, you're there just in case. So um, I give an example of you've got your office hours, but you get a call at the last minute saying that your philosophical heroine is in town on a rare visit you know, from out of the country and um, is giving a talk at this neighboring university uh, there would even be a place for you at dinner if you, you know, can go and if you want. And this is somebody you worship from afar, and it's your one chance. Now, my thought was, in such a case, I think it would be reasonable. And if it were my friend, I would actually tell my friend, "Go, go hear the talk, and right, deal with it later." Right? And I think that would be the. I don't know if it's morally right. It's not. I, I would not object to someone who did that. I, as I say, I would probably urge the person to do that. And um, so think it's, the reason, it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, on the other hand, if you had your office hours and you thought, oh, I'm just tired or I, you know, I want to bake a cake or I, yeah, just do something, take a bath, take a walk, I'm not going to go to office hours. That would be wrong. I think I would be critical of that. Now, I don't think, in terms of um, real value, I mean, going to hear your philosophical heroine's talk is necessarily of any more value than taking the bath or baking the cake. You could probably read the article, you know, the, the paper when it eventually comes out, and, you know, it. I mean, it's not really hmm. that it it has that 
has special value, but I think I at least, and I'm guessing a lot of people, react differently if the reason that the person misses office hours is to hear her philosophical heroine speak than it is to um, make a cake. Because they're sensitive to this notion of meaningfulness. Yeah, because philosophy is part of what gives meaning to this person's life, and this is in the this is within the kind of wave of, this is what philosophy people do. They love hearing the talk of their, right? not because it's so important, really, but just because it's part of what gives meaning to their lives, whereas baking the cake. Now, immediately I want to say, well, of course, baking cakes could do that, too, but you, you can bake your cake at a different time. It doesn't right. have to be that. Um, so, right, so I think our intuitive moral views actually are sensitive to the difference, but our theories aren't because we don't notice that there's a difference. Right. That's one kind of case. And, um, yeah, so I, maybe I should just stop there. And so, so I have two, uh, two follow-up uh, questions. So the first one is, do you actually have philosophical heroes or philosophical heroines yourself? Yeah, sure. Yes. You want to know who they are? Yeah, I want to know who they are. Well, uh, sadly, a, a, um, a lot of them are sure. That's have fine. Passed away. Well, so they're old, you know. Right. So That's historically, you know, I would say Aristotle, John Stuart Mill, they're heroes for me. Um, I mean, I have a lot of admiration for Kant, but I don't know that he's a. Just, I mean, it's a question of who speaks to you personally, I I'm suppose. asking. I'm asking you. Right. I'm not so, asking for objective value. Right. So Aristotle and Mill are up there. Um, in my lifetime, um, Bernard Williams is, I, I think, has probably had as much influence as any other single philosopher um, and is a hero. Iris Murdoch, also very important to me. P.F. Strawson. So these, they're all English for some reason. And then in a different way, I, I, probably Thomas Nagel is a hero. Um, second question. This is reaching a little bit, but, um, but maybe not. When one looks at impact um, of this way of thinking, both in terms of maybe getting people to think a little differently and giving some sort of understanding to another system and structure. I think sometimes of something like the market. So here's what I'm thinking. So there are many people who will talk about a philosophical structure to market economics and the market using these ideas of um, of moral behavior to the extent that we talk about why people act the way they do uh, in terms of maximizing their utility function, your classic economic idea that, uh, uh, which, is, which is, I don't think, universally adopted by any means now, but mm. it used to be that what we, have, what we have is we have a bunch of individuals who are out there rationally acting and rationally maximizing their utility function, which means that they are acting in their own self-interest. Right. And that's the framework that we have. And then other people might say, well, what about this idea of overall morality and for the common good and all that? Well, our philosophical structure 
or our structure of economics is we don't actually worry about that because we have this belief that if everybody somehow acts in this way, uh, it will lead to the following results and it would be improper for us to try to impose other criteria on there. So we should have this full unfettered system whereby people are actually maximizing their little utility functions. Right. So, so my understanding of this, again, as a complete non-expert, is that you have this, this, this polarized view of the rational uh, agent seeking, uh, I don't know what the word would be, um, self, whatever, self-indulgent individual. That's not, that's not the word that I want to use. What, what do I want to use? I, I, so, so you have the rational agent who is, who is uh, acting in his own self-interest to maximize happiness in this right. broadly defined way. Right, and egoist maybe. E sure, egoist. Right. Uh, and our whole view of the way we should structure our society economically is to say the other side of the coin, which is this moral aspect, should be taken out of that particular realm and we should just focus on that as a, as a way to go forward. And then there are people who say, no, no, government should be intervening more on the moral side. And so there's this juxtaposition of these, 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 this, this, these polarities, right? right? Yeah. And that we should construct an economic system being aware of, of this categorization scheme and then some people think there should be all of this and a little of that and some people think it should be the other way around and, and that's the that's the filter by which we should look at, at, at economic systems right and so I'm thinking okay if you expand that filter if you add another degree of freedom as it were if you say yeah. it's actually not the case that it's just uh, the egoistic side over here and the moral side over here but in fact there is this other area which has a whole lot to do with human fulfillment and human motivations and human desires that somehow has to be taken into account. One could imagine, at least in theory, that you could develop a, a completely different uh, structure, economic structure. I don't know how to do it, and, yeah. I, and I'm not suggesting anything, right. but it seems like there might be a way forward there theoretically. Does that make any sense? Yes, I don't know that it would win any um, political um, allies, but well, so they're well, not here right, anyway. Right. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Don't don't get me started. <laughs> um, so there are two two ways. I, I I had meant to come back to this too and just forgot about it. Uh, there are two ways that you know adding meaningfulness as a um, as a category. Uh, could affect us politically. One is um, perhaps less radical, but maybe more appealing and more likely to win allies, which is to say, look, um, it's important not to have overly simplistic views of what a good human life is. A good human life is not just the life that's happiest, but a life that's where that's meaningful and um, and that therefore, insofar as we are in the business of trying to, um, as a society, of trying to give people the opportunity to live good human lives to the extent possible, it's important to build in to what we're constructing ways that people can not just be happy, but can find opportunities for meaning. And those aren't, you know, so it's not just more TV stations. I mean, some TV is great and is an opportunity sure, for You're meaning, not an anti-TVI, right, we understand. Right, yeah, no, right. I probably give a lot of examples. Um, 
Right. And nor am I anti-happiness. I mean, happiness is worth a lot and pleasure is worth a lot, but not everything. But the point is, it might be a reason to say, make sure our education system does more than give them, you know, train them for jobs that they can make livings in and, um, and for, and the TV doesn't just have things that can, you know, be funny at the end of the day with a beer. Right. Um, so there'll be things like that that will give you reasons that I don't think that's a radical change. I mean, you're still trying to, and there'll still be the same debates about how much government should, sure. government or, you know, should have control of that and how much other things should create that. But at least it, it will improve the model of what we're aiming for, namely opportunities for meaningful things and not just pleasurable things. Um, and then, but then there's a second feature that I don't know how I would deal with and that the worries about who's to say come in at that point pretty greatly, which is to say um, it's not just, uh, well, which is to say that whether or not it will actually make individual lives better, there are certain kinds of things that it would be meaningful for people to do um, and that we should make sure our society continues to preserve and, and make possible, even if they wouldn't miss it if it weren't there, right? Or they don't even necessarily overwhelmingly desire it. It's not right. a manifestation of what people are demanding. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, I think some of the environmental issues, you know, connect to that, actually. I mean, issues about what, what needs to be preserved or... Right. Right. And education is a classic example of that. I mean, right. last time I looked, five-year-olds weren't marching in the streets demanding to be, to be educated. Right. And, and we do that because we think that equipping our young people with a broad-based general education will not only help them get jobs so that they can buy televisions and, 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 and right. buy ice cream cones and all that, which is nice too, um, but also in a broader context, provide a more meaningful life for them. Right, exactly. And so that, right, and actually right now, education is kind of in crisis because there are a lot of people who think the point of education is to prepare you to just to get jobs so that you can buy televisions. And um, yeah, yeah, that would be a disaster. Um, I wanted to uh, push the devil's advocate one more thing before we leave meaningfulness. Um, and maybe this was already covered to some extent, but I can imagine someone says, talks about happiness and doesn't so much talk about egoism or maximizing one's utility function or any of that sort of thing, or, yeah. um, but just says, no, there's, uh, the only thing that drives human beings is happiness. And my definition of happiness is not only getting an ice cream cone and getting that immediate rush of pleasure, but my definition of happiness is looking back on my life and feeling that it's fulfilled and so forth. So what, I, what I'm going to say is, oh yes, of course you're right. Those are important things for people um, to feel that they are contributing towards the greater good of society and to feel that their life has some, uh, some sense of broader based meaning. But that's really what I mean when I say happiness. I don't just mean this, this, this right. small thing. So, so you're not actually telling me anything new. You're just highlighting one particular aspect of my definition of what happiness is. Right. So how would you respond to those people? Uh, well, 
in some ways, I think that's fine as long as we remember that that's that happiness includes all this stuff. Um, I, I mean, that's Aristotle's view of eudaimonia, which is translated as happiness, is very close to my idea of the meaningful life. Very close. It's it's certainly Aristotelian in spirit. Um, but what's missing, I think, when most people say, look, happiness doesn't just include, um, you know, ice cream and sex, let's say, you know, that, I mean, it's not just good feelings, but these other things that are good, I mean, they're psychologically good. Fulfillment is a good feeling, but not a, you know, not in such a sensual way. Um, that seems to leave off the objective side of things. And so, insofar as they say, look, happiness includes all this stuff, I would just want to press on, on understanding what's making them happy and does it matter what's making them happy. I mean, it, right, the question is just whether happiness is the subjective side only of something that we only desire insofar as we assume that the subjective side is brought about by what it objectively seems to be brought about by. Because it seems to me that at some point, if you're going to do that, if I was going to have this position, I would have to explain, which is really my understanding of what you're saying, I would have to account for at some point this objectivity, this objective nature, it comes into play. It's important. It doesn't come into play when I'm getting an ice cream cone. There's, there's, there's nothing objective about which flavor of ice cream that I happen to want. Um, that's just completely subjective. And, and so you're not advocating that, that, that there be some objective That everyone criteria. should have salted caramel? <laughs> <laughs> not, when I'm, not when I'm serious. <laughs> so I'm, I'm learning all the stuff. I'm learning about Tolstoy. I'm learning now yeah. I know your ice cream flavor. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yes. Well, right. <laughs> Um, but so there is this, so for someone who would have this particular position, they would have to say, they would have to incorporate this, uh, this objective element in there, basically, right? right? Is, right. is what we're saying. So there's the, the experience machine. I don't know if any of your previous interviews have talked about the experience machine. It's a standard philosophical uh, thought experiment. It came from Robert Nozick in like 1974 or something. But the, the thought experiment is this, is that uh, imagine that there's a machine that um, you can plug yourself into, you know, hook, hook up with electrodes, and it can um, simulate in your brain the experience of anything you want. So you have your vision of what the best possible life is, um, and it can simulate for you the experience of living that life. And also you have to imagine that you, that there, um, you're totally confident there will be no breakdowns. It, you know, if you plug sure. in, I mean, you plug in for the rest of your life, but it'll, it'll be exactly what you want it to be. So if you think, you know, the best thing would be to be an Olympic athlete or to write, you know, the great American novel or, or whatever you think would be great and to have, you know, a wonderful, you know, loving group of friends and family, right? Plug into the machine and then there you know, you are in your, you know, uh, hooked up to these electrodes, experiencing all the things that you think are best, right? right. right. And the question is, would you, would you plug in? And, um, I mean, in fact, 
at, at least at the undergraduate level, it, uh, you get a variety of responses. I mean, a lot of people say, sure, absolutely, like, what well, you know, why not? But a lot of other people are, of course not. It's appalling. It's a terrible. Um, and so one question is, why is that terrible? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that was the point of the experiment. And uh, it's because what I, and if, if you're one of the people who thinks that would be terrible, it's a way of revealing to you that what I want when I say, look, for me, happiness includes, you know, taking walks in the, you know, with friends or having friends and writing philosophy and all this stuff. What you want is not just the pleasure of the experience, right? Um, it's you want to actually write the philosophy and not just have the illusion of writing philosophy. You want to have friends and not the illusion of, ha of having friends. Um, and you want that so much that given the choice between a more perfect illusion, like your, you know, the illusion would be that you wrote like one of the best books ever and that you ha and your friends never uh, neglected you or something, right? Well, the reality would be you have real friends, but they're not perfect and your book is only so good. You'd still choose the real thing rather than the perfect illusion because you don't, it's not the happiness of of thinking you're doing these things or feeling you're doing these things. It's the really doing them that matters. So that would be a way of bringing out the need for an objective backing to your, to what makes you happy. Right. And uh, apropos of this, and because we are sitting in North Carolina, which is in the United States of America, um, it may be worth pointing out that some people believe that this whole idea of the pursuit of happiness, which is in your, um, famous Declaration of Independence, yes. um, it is actually quite different from what people today think is the pursuit of happiness, namely hedonism and just going for that rush of pleasure. Right. It actually necessarily implied self-development, it implied education, it implied virtue, living a virtuous life in fact, and living a virtuous life by, by, the, by the criteria of the day meant exactly the sorts of things you're talking about actually attaining these results, writing the novel, having real friends, living in the world, as opposed to this superficial hedonistic rush of, of whatever chemical your neurotransmitters happen to be responsible for at the time. Right. So I think you're right about all of that. I mean, that, it is a good corrective, and it does make, if we think of the more, if you like, enlightened version of happiness, or the Aristotelian version, you might think, and you understand that that's not just about the experience, but of the experience being um, an experience of the real thing, um, then it looks a lot closer to my idea of a life that is not just happy, but in the narrower sense, but meaningful. So one corrective to the individualism that seems uh, you know, built into this idea that you should pursue happiness, and e even if happiness should be understood broadly to include meaningfulness, that's that's what this is about. It is, to my mind, a um, a nice feature of what I think meaningfulness is that if if you're living a meaningful life, not necessarily pursuing a meaningful life in order. To live a meaningful life, but if you're living a meaningful life, then th that will involve 
pursuing things that are objects of love other than yourself, whether it be other people, other individuals, uh, other groups, philosophy, art, nature, I mean, what, um, it won't be all motivated by the quest for your good life, whatever you put into it. I mean, you'll, you might even say, look, uh, you know, what's good for me, even including meaningfulness, is to do X, but I love this other thing. So even though it's good for me and the pursuit of my happiness would take me in one direction, I might actually go in a different direction because I love the thing that it takes me to. Not for my sake, but for philosophy's sake or for... For broader context. Yeah, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I did want to talk about free will, but, um, but I've kept you here for over two hours. So, um, so, so maybe we should... Forget free will. Maybe we should forget free will. Unless you have something. Okay. Do you have something really pithy? Uh, no, I don't have anything. No. Right. <laughs> it, would, it would be another two hours for sure. But do you have, before we conclude, is there anything that you wanted to add to this discussion that we've, we've missed? I'm sure I will think tomorrow of something that I would have said at this point, but I right at the moment, no. Yeah. Right. Well, Susan, I've had a great time. Thank so, you very much. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure, really. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Brian Epstein, Susan James, Honora O'Neill, and Hazana Sharp. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. 